0: Welcome to another episode of Distilling Design. Our second discussion with Cynthia Ferguson ended up being a two-part conversation, and here is the second half of that conversation. So shifting a little bit to what is it like to work in different provinces, different countries, what are the presses and minuses, what are the pitfalls?
1: Well, let's start with where you've worked.
0: So I've worked all over the U.S.,
2: and I have worked in the Bahamas, and I have worked virtually in Australia, which was really fun. And I think one of the things that I always dreamt about as a goal, when I became an engineer designer was of course the sexy part of being able to work in other countries and flying in and flying out and all of that, which naively is so fabulous, all on paper and in my head, it was so great. The reality though, I think, especially for us in the industry it's quite different from what it would be in our head. It is so difficult to control things in a market that you're not planted in ridiculous things like shipping companies and an installer and a curtain installer and, and all of that sort of thing that you take for granted in your own market, all your people for my clients, because we don't have budgets that are astronomical. You can't take your team with you. So it's, Always more difficult, I think, as far as a learning curve goes, to be able to assemble a team. I'm very, very, very grateful and very fortunate to have an amazing network of friends all over the world that are very open to supporting. That, you know, yesterday I needed a packer in California for two tables that weren't in LA and I had a shipping company, but they weren't packed. And I, you know, in 15 minutes I had a list of people that could do what I needed. I'm very fortunate for that. But the working in another country, I thought was going to be this amazing thing, especially in the Bahamas. And all of my friends were like, oh, we'll carry your bags. We'll take, you know, let just let us come. And what they didn't realize was the reality is so different. There's no Home Depot on the island where I did a lot of my work. So silly things like we shipped all this lighting down, but didn't have light bulbs. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'll just go to the hardware store and get light bulbs. And of course, all of my team on site looked at me and they were like, ah, uh, no, no, we'll have them flown in. And I thought, how extravagant of you. We're not flying light bulbs in. And they said, well, we have to get them from Nassau. So they will get flown in. And I thought, how do you explain that to a client? I had to fly your light bulbs in, but they use it like we do Uber, <laughs> You know, we just stick it on a plane and we'll bring over 12 chandelier bulbs.
1: So I'm, I'm laughing. So like, obviously I grew up in the Caribbean. If you go to our house, yep. we've just got, you know, pot lights. Every pot light is a different color.
2: Yep.
1: Because as you have to replace them, the hardware store only has so much. Yes. So yes. there might only be, you know, 15 on the island and then they're not getting them again until next year. No. Yes. So it's, it's like... An absolute
2: mess. The fabulous chandeliers come in. I was so excited. We installed them, and then I realized, oh my gosh, we didn't have light bulbs. And I, you know, I thought I need a chandelier bulb, which of course was met with puzzled, you know, expressions. And I went around to all the little grocery stores, and they all had sort of odds and sods of materials. And so this elderly gentleman was so fabulous, and I brought this picture and I drew it out, and he said, oh, I think I have one. And he reached up on his top shelf. And it was so laden in dust. You couldn't even see what was in it. And he wiped the dust off and he said, is this what you need? And I said, yes. And I need nine more of them. He said, oh, I have one. It was $12.99 for the one bulb. And I think it was from about 1960 something, but I had it. But then of course we had to bring them in, but things like that. I didn't think about, you know, duties, shipping. Oh my gosh. The fact that when you open a container, And you have a list of what should be in it and only three quarters of it have arrived. And the control over what comes and goes and the fact that you're only on site for four or five days and then you're flying back out and so much has to happen. It's really, really challenging. And I think the logistical part of it was something I grossly underestimated when I took my first foreign job on.
1: That's very much like island uh, design, which... You know, I know a lot about, but like island design is a whole, whole different ball game. I was working once back in Cayman with a fantastic interior architect who is Australian. <laughs> and I knew there were definitely some culture shocks with her. <laughs> it was just like, for example, if everybody was called for a meeting, you know how meetings work it's kind of like okay meetings for 11 o'clock maybe people start to stroll in about you know 10 past 11 11 15 you, know, you get your coffee have a chat by the time the meeting starts it's like 11 30 and she just could not deal with it <laughs> it was infuriating to her yep.
2: and, um, the fact that we also in the bahamas they're deeply religious and you cannot get people to work obviously on a sunday which i totally understood But a lot of families also attend church Saturday and Sunday, and it's actually insulting to ask somebody to work during church hours or family dinner hours post-church, which I didn't know about. I understood Sunday, but I didn't know about the Saturday part. The other thing which I loved about working in the Bahamas was that everybody started. It really is sunrise to sunset. So everybody would start work at sunrise, which for some other people was extremely early, which for me was great because I was thinking we would get nine hour days in. What I didn't realize was they may start at 6.30 or 7 in the morning, but they're finished at two or three because then it's too hot, too many hours of sweating and they need to leave, which was a little bit different for me, but I was so grateful too, that they would work early because our site had no water, no air conditioning on it when I first started. So I would go through three shirts in a day, (laughs) going up and down stairs. It was just so different. That and I think too, learning to work around supply boat schedules was crazy. And customs, 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 which in the Bahamas is a moving target, which was
1: something. Customs is a bitch. I know for us in Cayman, it's for foreigners, it's duty that always gets you. Yes. Because obviously you have no taxes on the island, no income taxes, but duty is insanely high which is how the government makes all their money. So, you know, oh, you need to order a fan. Let's say, you know, that fan, let's say, costs $200 US. There could be like a 90% duty charge on that, like easily, (laughs) you know, and and people are so shocked and they're like, well, you guys make so much money. It's like, yeah, there's a reason for it because we have to be able to afford this crap. The Bahamas
2: has an 80% duty on mattresses. And the reason that that was done was because one of the very large hotels in Nassau needed so many mattresses that they built a mattress company in Nassau. And so now the Bahamian government decided that if you didn't order from that mattress company that was locally produced, we were going to tax you 80% for bringing in your mattress. So you're either sort of stuck with working with what they produce locally in order to save a little bit of money and delivery time. Or if you really want your North American goods, you're going to have to pay an 80% tax on it, which is mm. insane by the time you pay transportation and whatnot. A lot of people understand it, but it certainly hurts. It's a lot of accounting, a lot yeah. of accounting. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a fully kind of different thing. But it's interesting because, you know, I find... You know, working in another kind of, for lack of a better word, first world country, that's not say Toronto, things just get done. I, you know, when I was working in Bristol, there was nothing. None of this talk of oh, well, the city council might not, you know, endorse it or whatever. You know, it depends on the mood of the person in charge. Like there, was, you know, that was, you know, if you submitted something, if there was nothing wrong with it, five days later, it was accepted, unless it was a huge project. You know, that's a whole yep. different yep. ball game. But you know, for these kind of little projects, there was none of this sort of bullshit. I find
2: that they were French. a lot less. <laughs> bureaucratic on the process of getting your project launched a lot less bureaucratic I found that working outside of Ontario even other places in Canada that they look at development and renovations or building as an employment opportunity and putting money into the economy as opposed to protectionism which is what I sort of feel like Toronto's running is well we're not sure if we're going to like that we're not sure how everybody feel about it so we're going to tie you up in red tape. And it doesn't matter what Joe down the block has done, the rules are different now. And I sort of feel sometimes in Toronto like we're throwing darts at a dartboard to see what works today, what doesn't work today, what somebody will say, the answers can be different. The seven, you know, people that you need to go through can be very challenging. Or I find in smaller markets or or outside of the country, you can really directly meet with the building inspector or the building planner and actually have a conversation, solve it in two minutes and you're stamped and off you go.
1: Well, And not only is it throwing darts at a dartboard, it's throwing darts at a dartboard that's attached to a car of somebody who's just learning to drive and yes. it's going all over the place and it's stopping and then going and then like turning left when it's meant to turn right. And then you're like, that's kind of what it's like.
2: Well, of course that doesn't work today. It's Tuesday. Like that only worked on Mondays, but today is Tuesday. So no, that doesn't apply today. Oh, is this the 13th of the month? Oh no, then that's a different rule. The 13th of the month, that
0: doesn't apply. I don't think this is new. This has sort of been the way it's always been. I mean, I remember when my parents moved here from Montreal and my mom looking at a poll with all these signs telling you everything that you weren't allowed to do. And they all kind of contradicted each other. It was so difficult to understand. She's like, I'm not going to park here. Like it just, it's, it's so very true.
2: true. That was If it's Wednesday and the sky is blue and you're wearing a pink dress, you may park here. Right, right. <laughs> I know. It's the same. And I think as much as the paperwork and duties and customs and whatnot are very difficult outside of our country to navigate, I mean, to the point, literally, and this is not a story that I fabricated, I used to fly back and forth because the islands I worked on in the Bahamas were outside of the capital, outside of New Province. And I used to fly back and forth on these tiny little puddle jumpers with the customs broker, because there are only two customs brokers on the island one company or the other, I knew them both quite well. And they used to fly back and forth with a binder and the binder was full of the paper. And I, you know, I'd always say to him, what, what are you doing? What is that? And he said, Oh, this is, you know, this month's duties. And I said, don't they just send you like the changes and the updated pages? And, and he kind of laughed at me and I got, Oh yeah, that was an ignorant North American comment. And he said, no, no, no. Everything changes all the time. We have to reprint it and hand out a new binder every three months. And I thought, what an antiquated way to do it, to literally be flipping through the papers. So I think that seems like that's backwards. But at the same time, everybody has the same set of rules, the same binder, the same set of paper. So in some ways, it seems it's way more old school and inefficient, but at least it's the same copy for everybody, which may be something that we don't have here.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping and I make comments all the time when I talk to inspectors and zoning examiners about trying to make it more streamlined and it's just going to take time. I'm starting to go up the chain of command because it's impossible to get anything done in a reasonable amount of time.
2: It is and I feel too that I do get different answers from the same department depending on who I'm speaking with which I think is the most frustrating thing because there doesn't seem to be as much of a uniform decision-making anymore, which I have found new in the last three to four years where I sort of think, well, this is what's written, but then you'll speak to somebody um, in bylaws or whatever and it's completely different or they've said that, well, that's true, but not in that case or this case. And I just find it difficult. And of course, from my client's lens, I don't want to send the message that we don't know what we're doing or that we're confused. And so trying to extrapolate the information and making sure that you're very clear and then relaying that to the client and then having to roll it back the next time you talk to somebody in the city. It's just, you know, there are days where I think they're never going to believe that we're confident, but we're only as good as the information we receive, which can be challenging.
1: I don't know. I think clients are starting to see how much of a disaster it is to actually work with the city. Mm -hmm. I know I've, I've talked to a few recently when they've you know i've had to sort of explain things and they're just like what
2: mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. You,
1: do, you have to do what it's like well, yeah i know we have to like sacrifice a virgin and then yes. you know, <laughs> on, a, on a full moon when the dogs are barking and like you know
2: in it's order to so get, you, get
1: your stuff through well and i think
2: <laughs> that some of our clients are having more more interaction with the city even just as over things as silly as getting a parking permit and They're seeing what that kind of a process is for them personally. And it's sort of, you know, like having to phone your mobile phone provider. Nobody wants to do that. (laughs) Nobody wants to phone the city. Nobody wants to phone the building inspection department. Nobody wants to have to deal with them. But at the same time, Jen, and I think what we were talking about earlier is that the inspectors aren't only looking at your own project anymore. They're looking at what else is going on the street as well. And I think that that's something that I've always said to my clients from the get-go is I don't care what any contractor says to you, we're applying for a permit, period, full stop. We're going to go through the headache because I don't want to be shut down. I don't want to play the game of we'll go ahead until we get caught. It's just not the way I operate. I like to sleep at night. I don't like my clients' times, however many clients we're carrying on our roster at that time to be stressed out. It needs to be done by the book. And if the city is the one
0: who's holding the book, we have to figure out a way to work together. I mean, that is our job, period. And that is basically managing expectations. And it's really hard to manage expectations when the goalpost is constantly being moved. But as long as we're aware of it and we can try and mitigate that, then it goes smoother and easier. Cynthia, you were talking about historical homes in Nova Scotia Mm -hmm. and how nice that was. Like, it's not just... It's not just hard all the time. It can be very nice. It
2: can be. And I think it's interesting to look at projects in different areas and that we have worked and see how the process differs and what we could learn. I know that I have shouted up and down in Toronto about how we don't have enough historical designations, that we aren't saving enough of our architecture and our history. And that really, I find upsetting and drives me crazy that, you know, I've recently been in Nova Scotia quite a bit and specifically looking at historical homes and looking at what has to happen when you're looking at buying a house in a UNESCO designated village, which is a whole other level of historical designation. And it's amazing at the transparency. It's amazing at the set of rules and how clear they are. And I don't know if that's because the entire town is designated UNESCO and therefore in order to get that designation, the historical parameters had to be so clear cut. But it certainly could be a great learning lesson about how to do it. Paint colors are designated everything. And when you're looking to buy, you look at the parameters before you even purchase so that you know what you can and cannot do. And it's great. I mean, you're not allowed to alter the exterior facade. And there is no deviating. That's the thing that I like. I have found in the town of Oakville, Here that they have a great historical society there, and yet within the historical village of Oakville, there are exceptions all over the place of new modern homes and old historical homes, and it's very difficult to understand how it happens that you can have a modern home in the historical area next to a historical home that can't have an addition with a different roofline on it because of the historical society, but you're living next to a glass box house. How does that happen?
1: I think it very much is, for the UNESCO, there just have to be rules. I know people here who've worked in Bath, Mm -hmm. which the entire city center is UNESCO. And there are some new builds because there's, you know, blank plots of land. But it's just, you know, it's very clear. You follow the rules and the rules are not bendable. It's just as simple as that, you know, you can still make a spectacular building. On the inside, for the most part, they don't care what you do, but on the outside, it, it's like, you know, it's just, it is what it is. I know on the Royal Crescent in the 60s, there was some woman who owned one of the houses there and she painted the door, this like disgusting sort of mustard yellow or neon yellow or something like that. And then, you know, 10 years later, the historical designation came in. And so now they can't change it. Oh. They've got to keep it this like neon oh. yellow, which is actually quite funny. <laughs> <laughs>
2: even in nantucket there are only so many shades of cedar shingles you're allowed to have on the outside and only so many different paint colors you're allowed to have and it's interesting because when you go to nantucket it is picture perfect everywhere and i thought you know it's amazing how much care they all put into it But again, if you want to live there, you accept the rules that these are the rules. This is why it looks as beautiful as it does is because there are these rules. It's why Lunenburg Nova Scotia is as beautiful as it is because it's UNESCO, there are rules and the people that want to live there or choose to buy there accept and respect the rules.
1: I think it also does make it easier if it's a smaller town.
2: Oh, a hundred percent, you
1: know, in a place like Toronto, for the most part, people don't care, which isn't great. And I'm not trying to defend anybody, but, you know, first of all, they probably have no idea even what they have, yeah. like what's, what's even in the city. And I guess it is just harder, you know, for them to try and control everything, but they still care too much about, you know, somebody trying to replace their balcony on a house and then whatever. Anyways, yeah.
0: <laughs> I digress.
1: they care about the wrong things, I think is what I'm trying to say. <laughs>
0: No, no, you're absolutely right. Because, I mean, yes, it's harder to do in a bigger urban setting. But, I mean, New York City, they've been able to maintain. There's a lot of stuff that happens that is not great. But if you choose to live in some of these historical buildings, they've got really strict rules and they don't bend. At the same time, it could take four years to get a permit to do anything as opposed to one or two here. It's like the red tape monster. But anyway, I digress. Are you
2: finding with the city and with renovations and whatnot, like there used to be what we would call the fast track, which was a seven day permit application that didn't have anything that was outside of the parameters of the city. So it should have been what was called a fast track. I know that they were things like, you know, building additions on the back of your home or being able to underpin your basement or things like that. Do you find that, All of those fast track opportunities, and I don't mean the length of time, but just what they covered, has that gone the way of the dodo bird here in Toronto? Now, are you finding that that's something that you know we can talk about that used to exist?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's nothing really fast about it at all. Um, And the just even for a balcony, you need six to eight drawings, foundation drawings. You need it stamped by an engineer. The Mm -hmm. cost involved between the person who's drawing it, the engineer who's stamping it, the permit fees. I mean, you're into thousands of dollars when really that could be the same amount as you're planning to spend on the balcony in the first place. So it's not easy and really get stuck in zoning. Building codes are kind of a no brainer. Nobody really disputes those because I mean, they're convoluted, but if you understand them and you can read through exactly every word and what it means, which is why it's so convoluted it makes sense and it's easy to get through but it's the zoning that is so complicated and shifting constantly really depending on who you talk to
2: that's interesting too because zoning didn't used to get as involved as they do now on residential projects which is what i have found it interesting that you know as we follow our paper trail for our projects through the city because we manage ours we file and then we know that it goes to this person's desk and this person's desk and this for, per- and I know that we're doing well until we hit zoning and zoning is always the, <gasps> it's in zoning. And that didn't used to exist five years ago or 10 years ago, that big hiccup of the zoning because it was zoned residential and it fits within the Ontario building code. So there shouldn't be a zoning issue. And now there seems to be zoning issues constantly.
0: What I've just discovered is once it passes the preliminary, yes, you've checked all the forms you need to submit and you've got all the number of drawings you need to submit. They actually send it to everybody all at once. So zoning and building gets it at the same time. We're talking about small projects. So oh, yeah, it's supposed to be fast track. It goes that's to both zoning and building at the same time and the building will approve it well before zoning does. So you're, I mean, it's a nice idea to try and speed it up that way. And that's
2: what we found too. I mean, we had you know, we've had a few pool cabanas we've done this year, which is a whole zoning issue and density issue and lot coverage issue. And we found that, you know, we had our paperwork in line and got tick, 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 and thought we were good and then had building ticket off and it was fine. And then when I asked the building department, if we were good, they said, literally my email back was no, because now you're in zoning. And then it was dot, 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 (laughs) dum-dum-dum. Oh, somebody has a sense of humor today in the department. But literally I thought, oh, that just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) You can't do that. You know, and this was something we were going to committee on, which of course we had everything ticked before we went to committee, but it was, I thought, oh, yep. mm -hmm, That's how I feel. (laughs) Everything's good till it goes to zoning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) they might be encouraged to to get organized a bit more after this oh my god
2: i just i think it's hard i mean it's the same game for all of us right it's volume the volume of what is happening in the city is absolutely unprecedented and it's so difficult to deal with the deluge of what we have out there right from trying to get a permit through the building department which still doesn't have enough people in it all the way through right supply chains and everything else it's just the volume. It's again, back to what you said, Matthew, is the smallest big city. (laughs) And we're still not thinking like a big city.
1: The biggest small town in the world.
2: There we go. See, there we go. Yep. And that's exactly the problem that we're suffering from right now.
1: And on that note, I think we can probably leave it there. Yeah. I think we already talked about last time, Cynthia, where everybody can find you on social media and all of that. And thank you so much again for doing another session with us. It's been absolutely fabulous.
2: Love speaking with you guys. I always learn so much, which is always so much fun.
1: And maybe, you know, we take a break and next season you come back and we yell at each other again.
2: <laughs> can see if anything has changed or if we're all still stuck in the permitting department. <laughs> exactly.
1: Still in the exact same spot, in the exact same position, the same chairs. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for having me again. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you you for coming.